This presentation, Call Your Mama, She Hasn't Heard From You in Decades, by Dr. Scott Hahn, will only be available until Monday, October 23rd. Welcome to the Magnificat Podcast. We are an international ministry to Catholic women. Throughout this series, we will pray together, share insights, and hear amazing testimonies, typically from women of faith who have been touched by the power of the Lord in their lives. This is a decidedly Catholic podcast, and in this series, you will hopefully learn more about the Catholic faith, God, the Blessed Mother, and much more. Thanks so much for joining us. Now let's listen to a great program. I feel like this morning we have holy bookends. <laughs> Kimberly just gave us that beautiful talk. What I love about Kimberly and Dr. Scott is that it's like every time I hear them, these new pearls come out. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So we're so blessed and thankful that both of you are able to be with us this morning. Uh, As Kimberly has mentioned to you, she is going to be literally off and running for family uh, responsibilities here. But now we have the other set of that end of the bookends, if you will, with us. So it's my uh, privilege now to introduce Dr. Scott Hahn. Dr. Scott Hahn is the Father Michael Scanlon, Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. That is a mouthful, but but wonderful. Uh, He is the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. Amen, right? Dr. Hahn has been married to Kimberly for 42 years. I, I, yes, God bless them. They have six children and 21 grandchildren. They also have one son ordained, uh, I understand, in the Diocese of Steubenville, Father Jeremiah Hahn, and I guess that was in 2021, so... Congratulations to the beautiful family. What a gift, right? And he's the author and editor of over 40 popular and academic books. I'm sure many of us have them sitting on our bookshelves at home, right? Okay. And there's a few more out there as well. (laughs) So if you've missed any, you have an opportunity to see that also. Um, we, We know where we've heard bits and pieces that over the years, shall we say that uh, Dr. Scott has been challenged by the rosary. And uh, so I really look forward to hearing, shall we say, his side of the story. (laughs) Dr. Scott. And we'll pray over Dr. Scott like we do for all of our speakers. So if you would like to join me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on him. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on him. 
Donna, thank you, and dearest sisters and brothers, thank you too. I want to express my greetings and gratitude to Bishop Toops, and on the way in, I got to see Bishop Zubik as well. It's such a joy to have our good shepherds here to support us. It's also a really wonderful thing for me to hear my bride. I mean, and I got here early enough to hear most of the talk, and uh, I'm flying out a little bit later to New York City, but um, timing is everything. To hear her talk was so inspiring, but it was also uh, interesting because we had a date light, a date night last night, and we didn't talk about what I was going to share or what she was going to share, and so Listening to her, I realized about 40 to 50% of my talk you've already heard. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to correct her anywhere. She was spot on. <laughs> I should mention, though, it's actually our 44th anniversary. We celebrated about seven weeks ago. So it's Magnificat's 42nd anniversary. I am so grateful and proud of all that you have done over these years. You really are the leaders that the Holy Spirit has called and anointed to do things that nobody but you are called to do. And you're equipped, and you're fruitful. And so as we were discussing this last night, our hearts were just full of, of gratitude for the privilege of sharing. I want to begin my time in a word of prayer, and you perhaps understand why I'm going to choose the Magnificat in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seed of wisdom, pray for us in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One thing Kimberly did forget to mention, I'm pretty sure, is that her name in Gaelic literally means warrior maiden. How fitting is that? 
you know, more than Esther, more than Judith especially, my head is still attached. <laughs> but you know, near the end of her talk, she really began to wrap things up by putting them not only in God's eternal perspective and the plan from the very beginning, but he also, she also put it in perspective in terms of salvation history. And that's where we really do learn that timing is everything. Not just our own, you know, not just our own birthdays and anniversaries, but really looking back at the story into which our own lives fit and studying sacred scripture and realizing that God the Father is still scripting the drama, the narrative of salvation history. And he is scripting our lives into this. And sometimes it is really dramatic and other times it's just really comic. I'm thinking in particular of our fifth anniversary. This isn't exactly an instance of salvation history, but I had really prepped pretty well because I had gotten a five-star restaurant, movie tickets and all of the rest, all of the rest. And what does Kimberly do? She decides that's the day to go into, to go into labor. <laughs> Girl, come on, you know, it's our fifth anniversary. So we ended up sharing the most wonderful anniversary gift of all, and that is Gabriel, our second son, after Michael, though they seldom acted like archangels. <laughs> but the 10th anniversary was going to be what the fifth anniversary was supposed to be, and then some. And so I was gonna let her sleep in. We planned to have breakfast in bed. And that didn't work exactly right either because downstairs, as we were struggling to sleep in, Michael and Gabriel were at each other. They were like fallen archangels. <laughs> and I had to go downstairs to quell the rebellion here. And when I got there, I said, be quiet. And I realized that Michael was just in his face. And I'm like, Michael, it's his birthday. You know, back off. And he said, you don't understand that. What don't I understand? He's telling people in the neighborhood that he was born on the same day that you and mom got married. <laughs> and he looked at me, Gabriel, five years old, like, isn't that what you said? It's like, can't I trust my dad? And I, and I turned to him, I said, it was the same date. It was August 18th. It wasn't the same day. <laughs> to a five-year-old, what difference does that make? <laughs> What's the distinction between day and date? But for the sake of his mother's reputation, I said, cease and desist. <laughs> you know, and so what we have as Catholics in the lectionary, in the scriptures, in our living tradition is this sense of timing, divine timing, divine scripting. And so often, you know, he does it in the strangest ways. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, St. Paul declares at the end of Romans 11. And at the same time, it's always fun to kind of go back and realize how God has written straight with crooked lines to quote Chesterton, and how his strength is made manifest in our weakness. And so as we think about the timing, we also think about the last generation or two, 
because it was almost 60 years ago as Vatican II was beginning to reach its finish that we had a document published that I encourage you to read if you haven't. It was on the church entitled Lumen Gentium. I read it for the first time when I was still a Protestant, an evangelical, a Presbyterian pastor and a seminary professor. And I read it and I remember thinking, dang, I wish we had documents like this. It was saturated in scripture, soaked in the old and the new. And they were always sort of coming together. And I had already begun teaching a course on the Trinity for grad students, only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, it was a lot of doctrine, a lot of terminology, you know, one in essence, one nature, one substance, and yet three persons, but not a mathematical abstraction. And what was it really? Well, it was God the Father fathering his family by sending his son for us to share his sonship and pouring out the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, so that we might cry out to him, Abba, Father, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But it's not a single parent family. And so how fitting it was that chapter 8, the climax of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, is focusing on the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, parenthetically, I'm aware of the fact that there had been preparation for a separate document on the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I think if that had happened, we would have celebrated that. Because a lot of people were coming fully expecting the church teaching to unpack the inner logic of what we celebrate in the queenship of Mary, that great feast. The queen mother, as Kimberly alluded to, that you find, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 219, when the son of David is anointed, he's crowned and enthroned, and Solomon's first decree is to bring a throne and have her seated, his own Gebirah, his own queen mother. A permanent fixture of the Davidic kingdom was always the queen mother, all the way up until exile, when they carried the king and the queen mother away. And so it would have been wonderful, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the near future, a document like that or deliberations about her role as co-redemptrix, co-mediatrix, and that sort of thing is promulgated. But let's just appreciate what we've been given. Because chapter 8, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God and the Mystery of Christ in the Church, is truly the single most fitting climax to this teaching. But it's more than just deliberation. It really is an invitation for us to contemplate. And to contemplate with heart, but also with head, just like the Blessed Virgin. Because she's not just you know, a type of the church, as the Ark of the Covenant was a type of her. She's the archetype of the church. And so we're trying to catch up to her. She is truly a virgin bride. She is also truly a fruitful mother. Well, usually in the natural order, you cease to be the one in order to become the other, but she is the mother in the supernatural order of grace, the family of God. And calling her mother, calling ourselves family, is not some kind of quaint metaphor meant to stir up warm, fuzzy feelings, but really nothing more than figurative language, pious rhetoric. No, this is like a laser beam landing on the back of my retina when I realized this was taught, this was true. But it wasn't just truthful, it was beautiful. I remember concluding this 
reading assignment and thinking, how am I going to, and how am I going to avoid becoming Catholic? <laughs> I mean, I remember realizing for several months that this is true. And that was terrifying, but it was also compelling. And so through scripture, the old and the new, in tradition, both the East and the West, the patristic and the medieval period, I had really been convinced in the head. Now for the first time, I found myself wanting it to be true and delighting in the truth because it's not just truthful, it really is beautiful. And so in Article 55, the sacred scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments, as well as ancient traditions, show the role of the mother of the Savior in the entire economy of salvation history in an ever-increasing light of clarity, drawing attention to it. The books of the Old Testament describe the history of salvation by which the coming of Christ into this world was slowly prepared. These earliest documents, as they're read in the church and are understood in the light of a further and fuller revelation, bring the figure of the woman, mother of the Redeemer, into a gradually clearer light. When it is looked at in this way, she is already foreshadowed prophetically in the promise of victory over the serpent given to our first parents after their fall into sin, as Kimberly mentioned, Genesis 3.15. Likewise, she is the virgin who shall conceive and bear a son whose name will be called Emmanuel in the Isianic oracle of Isaiah 7.14. She stands out among the poor and the humble of the Lord who confidently hope and receive salvation from him. With her, the exalted daughter Zion is fulfilled. I mean, we could go through as many examples as you find in Scripture, but Kimberly practically did that. I was so proud of her. <laughs> I know where she got some of that. <laughs> From the church and Scripture. I was just the pipeline. <laughs> it's kind of humbling when you hear it taught straight from the heart of hers to yours. But this notion of salvation history is not something that ended back in the first century. It's going on in the 21st century every bit as much as it was back then and there. It's here and now. And again, that isn't like holy puffery. Oh, let's just pretend there's no place like Rome. There's no place like Rome. This is not wishful thinking. This is perceiving the truth of reality through the eyes of God the Father. And the eternal son, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This is a family that makes the Hans Palin comparison. And this is a sojourn. We are pilgrims. We pray our father who art in heaven, if God is our father, then we are a family. But if he is in heaven, we're certainly not home yet. And yet he is with us so often through the Holy Eucharist in a way that we aren't even present to him or to ourselves. But that doesn't matter. It's not a contract, 50-50. This is yours and that is mine. It's a covenant. I am yours and you are mine. And so I want to propose that as we reflect upon what came to us back in 64, in November of that year, in Lumen Gentium, was picked up and taken to the next level 10 years later by Pope St. Paul VI and Mariolus Cultus, which is also a very beautiful document. It's on the right order and development of Marian devotion. And let's face it, I wasn't a Catholic back then, 
But after Vatican II, just like Eucharistic devotion, Marian devotion went into a sort of hiatus. It was dropped. You know, you realize that the rosary was considered something passe or preconciliar or archaic. And we've gotten through those times for the most part, but we don't want to conjure up nostalgia. We want to conjure up the kind of the kind of devotion that Pope St. Paul VI is talking about. And it's a curious fact that in this discussion, as he comes to lay the foundation, he does so on the basis of the lectionary that had just been promulgated four years earlier in 1970. And no wonder, because this lectionary was unlike any other in the previous centuries. And so he speaks of the lectionary as one of the books of the Roman Rite that has greatly benefited from the post-conciliar reform, the authentic reform, by reason both of its added texts and the intrinsic value of these texts, which contain the ever-living and efficacious Word of God. This rich collection of biblical texts has made it possible to arrange the whole history of salvation in an orderly three-year cycle and to set forth more completely the mystery of Christ. The logical consequence has been that the lectionary contains a large number of Old Testament and New Testament readings concerning the Blessed Virgin. This numerical increase has not, however, been based on random choice. Only those readings have been accepted which in different ways and degrees can be considered Marian, either from the evidence of their content or from the results of careful exegesis supported by the teachings of the magisterium and by solid tradition. I'm not sure we really appreciate what God gave us in the lectionary 1970. There was a 400% increase in the amount of the Old Testament that was woven into Sundays and feast days and also in daily readings. From every period of salvation history, from every part of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. I was talking years ago to our pastor. And Monsignor at the time had been a professor at the diocesan seminary. And he said, when that was promulgated, Scott, we were so excited, not just the priests, but especially the professors. But he said, we weren't instructed. So we didn't recognize how carefully interwoven all of these readings were. And he said, I'm only beginning to realize this. He had just come from a priest conference that we had sponsored from the St. Paul Center down in Ogle Bay. And his heart was on fire. Just like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And his preaching gradually was just changed and it was already good. But it became amazing. And this is something that has become a real priority to me and we have over 50 co-workers that now form part of the St. Paul Center. Our headquarters are opening up next month. You're unofficially invited. Call us first. <laughs> but this was my experience as well. And so before he gets to the topic of the rosary and the spiritual riches thereof, to recommend strongly the recitation of the family rosary, which I admit took Kimberly a little bit of time. We did an after-dinner decade until Pope St. John Paul II called for the year of the rosary, and by then the older kids were enough to 
they were old enough to stay awake, but they were also old enough to appreciate it and to help their younger siblings too. But I mean, it's so wonderful to read Pope St. Paul VI speaking of it not only as a gospel prayer, but as the epitome of the gospel. And no wonder, not only is it taken from the opening chapters of Luke, practically verbatim, but it basically walks you through the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the descent of the Holy Spirit, and her own climactic role in embodying the perfection of Christ's redemptive work. Just as Lumen Gentium said, the doctrinal teaching of the Church of Aunt Mary and her own personal devotion to the Blessed Virgin, including the recitation of the rosary personally or as a family, doesn't take anything away from Christ, nor does it add anything to Christ. Why? Because when Christ became human, taught, ministered, suffered, died, and rose, he didn't get any more glory than he already had before he got here. So why go to all of that trouble if it isn't to get more glory? Well, he's divine, eternally glorious. There's no way to add to it. So the only way to explain this, as the catechism does citing St. Bonaventure, it was to share that glory with us. Through the gift of grace, the seed of glory, you're not threatened, that's not competitive, you're not going to be upstaged. He's a father. Am I upstaged by my oldest son, Dr. Han the Younger, who's 40, professor of scripture, Old Testament and New, and doctrine at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg? Some days I am. (laughs) But I tell you, nothing is more fulfilling than to realize that I taught him everything I know, and now he's teaching me even more. And that's not only true in eternity, within the Blessed Trinity, that is the whole script of salvation history. That is who we are as his sons and daughters. That is what he wants. That is why he came, suffered, died, and rose. So look around the room. Where do you find proof that Christ's redemptive work is perfect? I'm looking at the first row, our clergy. I think they would be the first to say, nope. (laughs) And I'm looking around at all of the leaders at Magnificat, and the honest ones will say, nope. We're all works in progress. So what is the role of the Blessed Virgin Mary? If we were in a courtroom, I'd call her Exhibit A. Because Christ's work of redemption is only displayed perfectly in her. Well, wait a minute, she didn't sin. She's not really redeemed. But redemption is not primarily what we're redeemed from, sin. It's what we're redeemed for, sharing the glory of God. And so, you know, when we recognize that redemption is for our own partaking of the divine nature... 2 Peter 1.4, the good news seems to kind of spin out of control. I mean, to be made partakers of the divine nature, to be given his glory in the end forever, it's almost too good to be true. Unless it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the gospel truth of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Marian doctrine and Marian devotion, which is it? Well, heads or tails, which is it? If it's a real coin, it's got to have both. And the coin of the kingdom of heaven is the queen mother. 
that what the son of David did on earth on the very first day he was crowned, anointed, and enthroned was not only to issue the decree to have a throne brought to his right hand, but the only time that is recorded that day, his coronation day, that he arose from the throne is when she was ushered in. And when she was presented to him, what does he do? He prostrated himself because he hadn't outgrown honor your father and mother. And that was an earthly prototype. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the archetype. And as I said, we're trying to catch up as church to be pure as she is, the virgin church, and also as fruitful as she is as mother. And so she is the reality of it all. And she is exhibit A, that Christ's redemptive work is perfect. She doesn't take anything away from his work. She doesn't add anything to it. She is his work in a way that surpasses all of the humans and angels combined who enter into a glory that exceeds even what the angels would have had by nature. It's not just Catholic doctrine. It really is the mysterium fidei. This is the mystery of faith. Not just a list of sacred mysteries that make up the 12 articles of the creed in three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is one reality that surpasses the entire created universe. And it's not plan B. It's plan A. As Paul explained to the Corinthians, it's the natural, it's the physical, it's the mortal first, and then the supernatural, the eternal, and the immortal glory forever. Just like I tell my students to write a rough draft. That's the first Adam and Eve. Then you hand in the final. That's the new Adam, the new Eve. So as we turn from the old to the new, the new fulfills the old in a way that surpassed the highest hopes of even the holiest Hebrews. And this is who she is, and so this is who we are as her sons and daughters. How cool is this? I mean, when we receive this as children and grew up reciting the creed and the other formulas of the faith, I dare say I'm not sure we ever have grown up to the point where we appreciate it properly. This isn't just a checklist. This isn't just Catholic talking points. These are the pearl of great price. You know, people greatly esteem the hope diamond. This is much greater. St. Irenaeus referred to the covenant as the immortal diamond, unbreakable. It's what cuts, but even more than a diamond. I, I suppose I can relate to this more easily than most of you because I grew up here in Pittsburgh as a Protestant, I admit, but I, I, I grew up under the tutelage of my dad, who was the head of Hellman Hahn Jewelers. And so, you know, it's what your dad does. Your dad might have been a pharmacist, an attorney, you know. He might have been insurance salesman or whatever. My dad just designed jewelry that was affordable for ordinary people, but it was extremely beautiful. I didn't know it at the time, but it was being imitated all over the country. It wasn't until his funeral when I found out from all of the people who had rings on their hands, their fingers, that he had designed just how beautiful it was. My experience growing up was when he brought home the line because he was going out on the road to do some sales. And he would show me this, uh, it looked like a suitcase, only it had these trays. And when he would get home and change clothes, he would see my curiosity. And so he allowed me to pull out a tray. And he'd say, those are the emeralds, okay? Then I'd pull out another one. Those are the rings with rubies, wow then the sapphires, and then 
the pearls, and then the lowest one was the diamonds. And so these precious gems were just part of my upbringing. Well, I got to tell you, the sacred mysteries of our faith are more precious and beautiful than his best sapphire diamond ruby rings. This is why the high priest, for example, when he would enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, was to put on his breastplate because there were 12 precious gems. Why? For him to represent the 12 tribes, though sinful, they were so precious to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now that God has revealed himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what better way to convince us than to have the Holy Spirit overshadow the Blessed Virgin Mary as the glory of God overshadowed the Ark of the Old Covenant, which, as Kimberly explained, contained the Word of God in stone tablets. She contains the Word made flesh. It also contained the manna in the urn. She contains the bread of life, the new manna. And we could go on. This means that Mary is not like the Ark of the Covenant She is the Ark of the Covenant, and so you can retire that box, Harrison Ford notwithstanding. (laughs) And I'm not spicing it up. This isn't like the overzealous convert's rhetoric since, you know, I've been a Catholic now for 37 years. I'm not turning it up to 11. And when we get home and we see the face of God the Father and we behold the fullness of the grace and the glory of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we're going to turn first to Jesus and say, well done, exhibit A. But mothers don't hoard grace. They don't hoard anything. You know, Kimberly is the most amazing woman I've ever known in all my life. She doesn't hoard a thing. Whatever belongs to her is basically available for everybody. She lives for our children and our grandchildren. And our home is exhibit A, because she has been clearing it up and getting it ready for all 21 grandkids to come home. You know, Steubenville has never had a zoo. (laughs) Next week it will, for several days. You know, and it is going to be the most beautiful zoo I've ever seen. But I want to convince you that what we need to do is pay attention to the teachings of the church that have come down to us. And not just 60 years ago with Lumen Gentium, not just 50 years ago with Marialis Cultus, you know, and also we could go back, you know, 40 years to the birth of Magnificat, but also to some amazing teaching. You know, you just think back to, to 2002, and even though he was ailing and practically dying, John Paul gave us a letter on the rosary that is beautiful. Pope Pius XII, who came before Vatican II, over 40 encyclicals, more than all of the other popes of the 20th century put together, and somewhere around 20 of them were on the rosary. And it wasn't a fixation, it was not an obsession, it was a 2020 insight into what the 20th century needed. And if that century needed it, what should we conclude? We need it much less, I don't think so. I think we need it much more. And so this is not some kind of dire prognostication from a prophet of doom, although I'm not terribly optimistic about the near future. But I mean, if God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, Mary is also exhibit A. 
So the idea that we are spending more time watching cable news than spending time soaking in scripture, that I would propose is an instance of misplaced priorities. And so, you know, we are upset because there are all these people around our country who are striving to be virtuous and yet they're afraid of the government. Sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, government, the secular politicians targeting virtuous citizens, and sometimes even within the church, you have to kind of hide your Marian devotion. That's much less true now than it used to be. But I knew seminarians back in the 80s who had to gather at night to pray the rosary off the radar. And so this idea of being at least striving to be virtuous and yet being afraid of our leaders, it's nothing new. Think of the Holy Family in Bethlehem. And what do you have? Herod the Great. But Herod the demonic killer targeting the Messiah. And why would the Jerusalem priests supply him with the information from the prophet Micah so that he knew which little town to target? Bethlehem, David's birthplace. There appears to have been some clergy complicit in this conspiracy. And if that was true at the beginning of his ministry when he was first born, let's look at the last week of his ministry. It seems like he was on a roll. Hosanna in the highest, the triumphal entry. The disciples were calculating how to consolidate the gains and enlarge them. And then in a matter of days, crucify him, crucify him. Barabbas, how fickle we are, how fickle they were. And so we're reminded of that old French expression, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So we have a kind of myopia, which is nearsighted. All we really see are the crises of our own day, which are unique, like all the others, but not necessarily worse than all the others. I mean, when's the last time you had to take your family and flee to Egypt? In the scripture readings this week, we're hearing from Ezra and Nehemiah, from Baruch and the Psalms, and all about exile, the diaspora. It might come to that, at which point we're going to probably have to question our Catholic faith. No, we're going to have to cling to it, embrace it more fully than ever before. Jesus wasn't talking about the U.S. Constitution when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. I love America, but as Paul reminded the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And he used the technical term, polytuma, which was the term used with legal precision to denote citizenship or your commonwealth. Now, he wasn't, the, he wasn't telling the Philippians, therefore, neglect Philippi. No, apply yourselves, just like we read in Jeremiah 29, plant gardens, build houses, get married, have children, find spouses for your sons and your daughters, and pray for the peace the shalom, the welfare of the cities to which the Lord your God has driven you. And pray. That's the seventh thing that Jeremiah commanded them, giving them the word of the Lord. So our prayer has got to be constant. It has got to be the highest priority. But fueling our prayer will be reading scripture. Then it really does become more and more of a dialogue where he's hearing our hearts, but we're hearing his and I would propose that what we need to do is to step back and also reassess the priority, not only of the rosary in our lives. It was John Paul's favorite prayer when he finally said that. I could come out and admit what I'd been feeling, 
about the rosary as well. Because it's my 40th anniversary. It was back in 1983 that I prayed my first rosary on the last day of the year, sort of fearing 1984, Orwell and all of the rest. But I entrusted to her an intention that I had just practically given up on. Since I had become an adolescent, I had such a struggle with purity, I was just deeply ashamed of the fact that even after you get married, other women are attractive? How naive was I? And so God kept us pure, virgins and all of that, but that was his, that was his fault. I mean, not to us, O oh Lord, but to your name be glory. But I remember giving it to her in 1983, and here we are in 2023, and to the best of my knowledge, I haven't gone a day unless I was really sick or in surgery. And even then, I think I prayed a rosary. At least one, sometimes two, three, or four. And it is my favorite prayer by far and away. But I thought you were a scripture scholar. Exactly. <laughs> Nothing made sacred scripture come alive like praying the rosary. Putting yourself there alongside of her, looking at it through her eyes, and seeing how the Holy Spirit, even when she's not mentioned in the particular scene in a gospel narrative, you know she's either there or she's getting a full report at the end of every day. And even after the disciples abandon him, one betrays, the other denies, but they're all scattered. And what was she doing on Holy Saturday? She was praying more forcefully and more faithfully. It's not like God needed her prayers in order to resurrect his son, but he dignifies us with the power of prayer in order for us to become God's co-workers. It's not because he can't get the job done by himself, it's because the job that he's doing is a fatherly job. So he is empowering daughter Zion, the Blessed Virgin, to not give up, but to take it up a notch to pray so that her prayer becomes an instrumental cause of her son's resurrection. It's almost too good to be true, but once again, it's the truth of the Catholic faith. And so as we reflect upon that, we also reflect upon the importance of Scripture, especially as it's read from the heart of the church. When Jesus was raised from the dead, what did he decide to do on his first day back from the dead? Think about it. What would you want to do if you were you know, crucified, you died, you were buried, you descended into Hades, and then you're back, and this is your first day back from the dead. What would your to-do list, list look like? I would certainly drop into my mom, and that's the universal tradition of the church. Thank her for those prayers. The disciples gave up. They were so bewildered, but she didn't. You know, I would have on my to-do list other things, too, like, you know, just drop in and pay a visit to Pontius Pilate. You know, show me those hands that you washed. How clean are they, you cynical politician? <laughs> what is truth? That would be me. <laughs> I'm just saying. And then, you know, I would also say, I've got to go, but you should have listened to your wife. <laughs> you know, and then just kind of saunter over to Herod's palace just to say, I'm back. And I'm not John the Baptist. <laughs> and then I'd probably pay a visit to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests that year. And just kind of hover over them and the whole Sanhedrin and just say, you have a lot to rethink. I mean, from ground zero. 
And then, you know, drop in on the soldiers, especially the ones who drove the nails into my hands and feet. You know, you were torturing me. You were driving those hands and you were driving those nails into my hands and feet. You know what I was doing besides enduring that pain? I was redeeming you while you were executing me. I mean, the brain explodes, as does the heart. But this is what we profess, and that's what's in Scripture. But let's take a close look at what Jesus' to-do list looked like. Because Luke 24, verse 13, tells us that on Easter Sunday, mid-morning, maybe late morning, he meets up with Clopas and his companion walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's seven miles, but it's not straight, nor is it level. It's hilly, it's winding. And he asked them, what are you talking? Are you the only one who doesn't know? What things? Concerning Jesus Nazareth. He was crucified. Now some women came from the tomb. You know, don't you know about these things? How ironic is that question? (laughs) Are you the only one in all of Jerusalem? He's the only one in all of Jerusalem who knows exactly what's happened because it happened to him. (laughs) You know, he could have said, just keep walking. You know, I'm going (laughs) to drop in on someone else. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer before entering into his glory? No, stranger. The enemies, the Messiah, should have been the ones doing all of the suffering. But, you know, there he goes. Beginning with Moses and all of the law through the prophets and the Psalms, he opened their eyes. But no, he didn't. He didn't open their eyes. He ignited their hearts. I mean, going to Genesis, seeing Abraham offering his only beloved son as a holocaust and getting him back on the third day, where Moriah, one of the most prominent hills of Moriah, just happens to be called Golgotha? Huh. And then moving on to Joseph, because Clopas in the tradition is Joseph's younger brother. Here he is, not even recognizing his own resurrected nephew. But Joseph, the son of Jacob, who is righteous, but misunderstood by his own brothers, given a series of dreams, takes the holy family of Israel down to Egypt. Sound familiar? They knew these stories. But then there's St. Joseph, who is the son of Jacob, who's described as righteous, given a series of dreams, and he takes the holy family to Egypt. They knew those stories. They knew the Passover. They knew the Exodus. They knew Moses. They knew 40 days of fasting there, getting the law of the covenant like Jesus fasted and then gave the Sermon on the Mount. There's a new mountain because there's a new Moses, a new law because there's a new covenant. But as he begins the sermon, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And this is probably mile marker 2.1. They're not even halfway there. But already he is igniting their hearts. And then through the prophets, and then they arrive and they persuade him to stay. And that's when it happens at the table. When he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives, Eureka! The scales fall. And they recognized him. And he said, it's about time. What took you guys so long? (laughs) No. He had deliberately withheld the disclosure of his own resurrected identity until he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave them that bread. And then he vanished, not because he was playing hide-and-go-seek, but because once he brought their faith to the point where they could recognize through the eyes of faith the resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharistic bread that he had just broken, his physical body didn't enhance his real presence. It could have become an obstacle, an impediment to faith maturing. He vanished. 
And they turned to each other and finally admitted what they've been feeling for hours. Did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures? But their eyes were only open in the breaking of the bread? Huh. What does that expression become known for? Throughout Acts in the first generation, it's what we call the holy sacrifice of the mass. It's the paradigm of the liturgy of the word and then the liturgy of the Eucharist. What are we going to do? We should probably spend the night here in Emmaus and then get up early. No, not even an option. That same hour, they turned back and they walked much more briskly to Jerusalem. And then they see the 11 in the upper room. And you can imagine the scene, you know, Peter's there at the head of the table. Come on in. Is it Clopas? Yeah, good to see. You have a report? And what is that? That you've seen the resurrected Lord. Okay, yeah, we've had a number of people who had sightings. But you, you walked with him for hours and hours, mile after mile. Huh. I mean, I want to believe you. I'm just thinking, we were here the whole time, you know. I could picture Clopas saying, well, maybe if you hadn't denied him three times, you know, he <laughs> might have been here instead. Well, it wouldn't have taken us hours to recognize him, you blind dolt, you know. But instead of allowing any sorts of criticisms, who suddenly appears? Jesus. And he asked for something to eat. Not because he just didn't stop off at a market to pick up a snack. He wants to restore fellowship. He wants to renew the covenant. And he spends the rest of Easter Sunday, late afternoon, throughout the evening, opening up the law and the prophets and the Psalms. What is this guy doing on his first day back from the dead? Leading two extremely extensive and detailed Bible studies. What can explain that? Well, I mean, PTSD. But what if he is not suffering from some post-traumatic syndrome? What if he doesn't have a case of misplaced priorities? What if we're the ones with misplaced priorities? Reading scripture from the heart of the church. And as Pope Paul VI reminded us, reading scripture from the lectionary with a 400% increase in all of this is going to make us the Bible Christians on the planet which explains also why is it that within five or 10 years of the promulgation of our lectionary, every mainline Protestant denomination adopted, guess what? Your lectionary. They ended up rejecting it and adopting a common lectionary because after several years, people began to realize, wait a second, the new is concealed in the old and the old is revealed in the new, but it points to the Eucharist, the real presence. It points to Mary as the new Eve, the Ark of the New Covenant, the Queen Mother of the New Solomon. So we'll just adjust this so that there's not a perfect convergence like that. And yet, meanwhile, how many Catholics were even aware of the strategic deployment of the old and the new every Sunday and feast day? Clergy, laity. But I would propose to you that Easter Sunday is a perfect picture of the partnership that clergy and laity ought to form. I mean, Peter could have said, I'm the first pope. You know, what are the chances that he'd spend all that time with you guys? But he appeared to women first. And then to these lowly lay people. I can picture, you know, Peter, it's Clopas, right? Yeah. And you want us to believe. But Clopas just simply told it like it was. Take it or leave it, you know? And then when he got to the point where he explained how he was made known in the breaking of the bread, it wasn't a flashback. 
Clopas and his friend didn't have a deja vu. Wait, this is just like Holy Thursday with the Passover, where he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. We know who you are. No, they weren't numbered among the 12. They weren't in the upper room. They didn't hear on Holy Thursday how he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. This is the moment that Jesus chose to disclose his own identity, his resurrected body, blood, soul, and divinity. Through the scriptures, through the Eucharist, to the women and the laity, and then to the hierarchy, the clergy. And it's not for competition. It's for collaboration. It is for this non-competitive thing we call family. Now, I know my family had lots of competition, you know. But at the same time, they grow up and they realize how foolish and what a waste of time it is. I would say it's a waste of time to indulge in ecclesiastical gossip. We love the Holy Father. We pray for him. We don't have to agree with him on all of his opinions, but we have to take him seriously, take him to heart. And when we do, we will be able to discern what the Lord is asking of us. But he is not instead of Scripture, and he'd be the first to emphasize that. And he doesn't in any way supplant or subvert tradition. He would also be the first to emphasize that. So let's really step back and get a sense of timing so that we realize in salvation history and in our own period, in our own place in God's plan, we are here for a reason, to join with the apostles and their successors in bearing witness to Christ. And when we do, I got to tell you, it will change everything. Let me just tell you an experience I had going back to my first year as a new Catholic. I didn't realize how many fences I would break in my own extended family. My mom said, you better visit your sister. You went to seminary with your, your brother-in-law. You were close friends. You did Bible studies together. And now he doesn't even know whether you've lost your faith. So we paid a visit. And we made an arrangement. My sister Barb and Kimberly made us pledge not to debate. Dang, I did it reluctantly, but I said, I won't start it. But if he does, and he did after dinner, down in the basement in his own office, when he said, I'll just show you a few new books that I've got. Yeah. So you're worshiping Mary? No, I'm imitating Christ. What? I'm honoring Mary and loving her, not more than he did, but no less. He said, that was clever. I thought so too, you know, thank you, Holy Spirit, thank you, guardian angels, you know. But then he asked about the Immaculate Conception. He wanted to debate the assumption. He even knew about the queenship. An hour and 15 minutes later, I had gone through the typology of the first covenant, the first creation, the first Adam and Eve, and how they went from a garden to the wrong tree and broke the covenant. And then the new Adam in a garden being tested, but he went to the right tree with the Blessed Virgin there at the foot of the cross as the new Eve giving consent to undoing what our first parents had done in order to do what God the Father wanted. He's like, oh, huh. And they were immaculate. They were not created with original sin. Jesus wasn't either. How fitting it would be for Our Lady not to be. Okay, that's plausible. And then we went into the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, how David found it in the Judean hill country 
where it was for three months and how Mary came to the Judean hill country containing the word of God made flesh and she was there for three months and he was like, huh, I never saw those connections. And then we went into the whole idea of the queen mother and how Solomon enthroned her and how Jesus, the son of David, in the new Jerusalem assumes our lady and she is there, what? Clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and crowned with 12 stars. I said, Bill, what are the 12 stars? The Zodiac? No, the 12 tribes of Israel. She's the queen mother of the new Solomon. And I got so excited, I got too loud and Kimberly and Barb came rushing down. You promised that he started it. No, he started it, you know. And the next morning, I'm halfway through breakfast when I just looked at the calendar and it was August 15th. Well, see, you don't memorize Bible verses. You memorize holy days. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) I was just a new Catholic. This was the first solemn feast of the Assumption of Mary. And it was a holy day of obligation. I remember that. So I said, you know, are there Catholic churches here in State College, Pennsylvania? Only one. And what is that? Well, Our Lady of Victory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay. How do I get there? When do they have masses? We don't know when they have masses. Well, they had one at noon. And as I looked for directions, we didn't have GPS back then. And so Bill said, you're going to get lost. And he was right. I would have. So he volunteered to drive me. I would never have asked him. And then I said, I don't know if it's going to be 30 minutes or an hour. He said, well, I'll come in. You know, I could sit in the back. And Barb is like, and so he drove me there. And we went in, we sat down, you know, and I was going to try to explain the missile and how to use this missile. I don't know, that'll be just troublesome. So we all stood up for the opening rite, except for Bill, the Baptist, just <laughs> observing. And then after those opening prayers, you know, we have the scriptures, the lector gets up and he reads from 2 Samuel 6 where the Ark of the Covenant is taken to the hill country of Jerusalem and all of that. Uh-huh. You know, and then Revelation 12 where the woman's clothed. I forgot, Psalm 132. Now there are 150 psalms you can choose from, but only one is devoted to celebrating how David cared for the Ark of the Covenant and so God gave him a divine covenant for his dynasty to last forever to produce the Messiah. Psalm 132, what are the chances? And then Revelation eleven nineteen through Revelation twelve seventeen, and we stood up for the Annunciation, the Visitation, where Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. And I'm standing there, just tingling, like I felt like I just won the lectionary lottery. <laughs> I thought I invented these connections. I had reinvented the wheel, you know? And I sat down, and Bill, who had not stood up, suddenly leaned over and just jabbed me with his elbow. What? He said, did you have anything to do with those readings? (laughs) And I'm I'm half tempted to say, yeah, Bill, the Pope called me last week and said, you know, you're the convert of the month, and so you get to choose, you know? And I said, I had no idea what the readings would be. I whispered that. And he rolled his eyes at me like, yeah, sure. (laughs) And I was completely sure that I had nothing to do. I had never gone to the solemnity before. I had no idea how loaded the lectionary was. 
But I've got to confess one thing. I was slightly underwhelmed by the homily, which was like over and done in four and a half minutes or so, and they didn't connect any of the dots. You know, and that kind of confirmed what I discovered later, that everybody was excited, but nobody got instructed, and so we've got to make up for lost time. It's been more than 50 years. And it's not just for the clergy, it's the laity. It's to celebrate, it's to enter into a partnership, it's to become real Bible Catholics. You know, Jesus only called one thing the New Testament. As we read in the New Testament, in Luke twenty-two twenty, 20, he takes the chalice and says, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Kine diatheke is translated, you know, New Covenant, New Testament, just like it's tomato, tomato. And then what did he go on to say? Write this in remembrance of me. Except he didn't. He said, do this in remembrance. Do what? Do the Eucharist. But he didn't call it the Eucharist. What did he call it? The New Testament. I discovered in the process of studying and praying my way into the church that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it became a document. According to the document... It doesn't devalue the document. If anything, it enhances its value and power when it's read in preparation for the celebration of the Eucharist, of Christ, of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11.25, the first New Testament writer to speak of the New Testament is Paul. He's not talking about how it feels to write 1 Corinthians. He's talking about what Jesus did near the end of the supper and when he took the chalice and he said the words of consecration and the only thing he calls the New Testament is the Eucharist. All I wanted to be was a New Testament Christian. Then I realized that means becoming a Eucharistic Catholic. Entering the family of God, which is more than just the oldest and biggest denomination on the planet. The Catholic Church is Catholic not because it's centered in the Vatican. It's centered in heaven. where God, the father of this family, where Christ is the king of this kingdom, where the Holy Spirit dwells in us as in a temple. This is reality, not religious rhetoric. This is who we are. This is why we love her, just like Jesus. This is why the rosary will open up the scriptures and prepare us for the mass. And then the fruit of a holy communion will lead us back to her so that we will do whatever he tells us as she encourages us. And this is who we will be for the next, I don't know, five or 10 trillion years. And then we'll look at our watches and realize barely the first minute of eternity has passed. And this is who will be forever. And she will be part of who we celebrate as the family of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ and how you not only gave us your word in the law and the prophets, but that word who became flesh to dwell among us, to die for us and to rise again, now longs to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to make us more like the Blessed Virgin. And so we are grateful, especially this weekend, for the gift of the Blessed Virgin, not only for her Magnificat, but for this one here as well. We ask you, dear Father, that you would enhance and supernaturalize our memory, that we would always recall of what story we are a part, that you have scripted, our lives down to the painful details and given us a cross to carry each and every day. We ask that you would bless our families, our marriages, our children, our grandchildren, our godchildren, because all of us are your children. So hear us as we pray that family prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before you clap, I just wanted to mention that you're the first to see this brand new book called Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, dedicated to the Holy Family since they paved the way. Thank you so very much. I really do love you and Kimberly so much. I'm oh, so grateful for you. What a joy. I'm going to embarrass you for a second. Okay. These are faithful people. I mean, First of all, y'all are heroes because we're like 8 o'clock mass until right now without a break. And this is very, very impressive. And I am quite sure we're about to give you a break. But sit down for one second because I want to say thank you and I want to honor Dr. Scott Hahn. I was uh, my first year in the seminary and somebody gave me a cassette tape. <laughs> Dinosaur. That long ago, it was actually an eight track. (laughs) And it was this story by this new convert who had been a Protestant minister who was sharing this journey. And, And Dr. Hahn's classic way of sharing the beautiful depths of the faith but also using the God's gift that he has given us of humor and the scriptures and his personal testimony. He asked prayers for his wife, Kimberly, who was not yet Catholic. Uh, and he shared the story. And in this little seminarian's heart, it, it, it was a moment of transformation because he showed me the beauty, the depth of the scriptures of his own journey as a cradle Catholic. I, didn't have that appreciation that he grew into. And it was a moment of transformation for me. Uh, And I can assure you that in the the late 80s, early 90s, it was very, very difficult to be a layman wanting to teach and share the faith the way we have understood and and really have, have come to appreciate Uh, in the life of the church, the vocation of the laity and the humility of a man who had been an ordained minister in his own tradition uh, to step down from that. A couple of years later, I had the privilege of giving Dr. Hahn a tour of the North American College in Rome. And I took him up to the roof and it's this beautiful view of St. Peter's Basilica and the whole city of Rome all in one great vista And Dr. Hahn looked at me and he says, let's just pray, brother. Glory be to the Father. And we prayed the glory be. And I thought, God, this guy's the real deal. (laughs) And it, and it just, it just moved my heart so deeply. Now, I also know how very human and beautiful this family is. So I'm not canonizing him. But I want to just show my deep, deep gratitude because Dr. Hahn 
has started something by God's grace in the life of the church that's really what I would call the new Oxford movement in the church of laymen and women who share and teach the faith. Your spiritual sons and daughters, I think of focus missionaries. I think of the Augustine Institute. I think of what you have done for the Franciscan University of Steubenville and the St. Paul Center. In all humility, God used this man to really make a profound, significant impact on the church more than probably any other person in in my lifetime. And I just want to say thank you, and we love you, and we thank God for your gift. So praise be to God. I mean, like... I feel like the most blessed donkey, the best of Jesus. Yes, I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I know you do. I love you. Love you. Love you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this Magnificat podcast. Have you been touched by our time together? If so, for more information or to find a Magnificat chapter near you, go to our website at magnificat-ministry.org or visit us on social media. We would love to hear from you. You can also email us at magnificatcst at aol.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.